Bookworm Games, Episode 55, A Woman's Prerogative. If we'd underestimated the threat of the forces arrayed against Faye and the others for a while there, we might have been forgiven. The fights against the elements, or against Graf and the executioner before that, or even against Id himself, have all gone our hero's way. Even when Ramses ambushed Faye and Ellie from behind and sent us into the fugue state of Disc 2, they were able to recover, and it only unlocked new powers in Faye's gear and a new saintly persona within Ellie. Everything has turned out for the best, including the recovery of the final anima relics to complete the rather truncated arcs of Rico and Billy. If they represent a process of personality development and individuation, we see the finished state reflected in their gears, if not in the story proper. And we're left to imagine whether the voice of promise or memory of lost loved ones or absent significant others, these two foils for Faye might have come to terms with through the maturation of their fighting prowess. And yet, with the ominous conflict against Hammer of all people, Rico's semi-trusted crony, and with Faye's resolution with respect to Ellie that follows, and the dramatic assassination of Emperor Cain committed by the disdained Ramses, the machinations of the elders and Krellian take on a considerably doomier aspect. The Gaichiaki, a garbled translation of a book of magic, it seems, has been deployed now, and it starts a kind of ignition sequence for the resurrection of God and consummation of the time of the gospel we've been hearing about. It's the perfect phallic representation of the consummation which is to follow. The first sign of the changed world we're about to enter comes in Ellie's narration of the howling in Nissan, the ramped-up mutations overwhelming their nanomachine treatment, which had been going so well. And not just any howling, but war cries, calling out to something. A visceral commentary on that futility that was sensed by Fay in the hammer battle and his descent into the abyss. The echoes there go back again to 2001 A Space Odyssey, where the monolith, and it's called the Zohar, and we'll be meeting it shortly in Xenogears, is connected with violence and possessiveness as much as with wisdom or power. These allusions, along with the Ramses' Egyptian name and the Cain biblical one, invite a whole allegorical reading. It's easy to dismiss these references as a hodgepodge, arbitrary straining for profundity, but the pervasive sense here is of inevitability, of the recurrence of certain patterns of story, in obedience to certain compelling psychological and aesthetic impulses. The elders, poised to rise again to resurrected life and to greater power than ever, repeat their conviction of being destined by God. Ironically, it is once humans have filled the earth that the change comes about, their humanity forcibly subsumed into some greater mass straining towards organization and the working out of a purpose of its own. This Mahanon, this ship rising from the bottom of the sea in a cutscene, 
echoes the opening of the game and of Godzilla too. In an escalation from the anima relics, it's the pursuit of God and God's wisdom enshrined there that becomes our party's goal. At this perilous juncture, to all appearances, the final dungeon before us, Faye and the others delay their departure for one final night, which he and Ellie spend together. The agon of the previous chapter centered on the elements and Ramses arguing over power and loyalty, but it shifts to the heart of the game now, on the relationship between Faye and Ellie, and there finds a tentative resolution. From their first meeting in the forest, through all the rocky development, their confrontations and gears arrayed on opposite sides of this feudal war, Elliot faced Faye in her role of Gebler officer, elite soldier, while still finding herself drawn to him by the intimation of their similarity and complementarity. When she finally joined in his struggle, it was to prevent another city being destroyed in Nortun, as it had been in Lahan, for which the two of them were equally responsible. But she showed there her willingness to resist the inevitable, to go against the socially prescribed persona she had inhabited. She was rescued by an angelic-winged figure, those aspects of Faye's own nature which he is only now in the process of fully accounting for, an inevitability of its own. True enough, their combined efforts and the unlocking of the latent true power of the both of them eventually leads to the annihilation of Ellie's homeland, Solaris. To jump ahead to the recent chapters with the anima relics, like the angels in the Nissan Cathedral, the painting scene we saw from each of their perspectives in turn, and these anima relics are an image of the complementarity linking Faye and Ellie across time. In each of those previous scenes of agonistic speech, with the Sufal mass, the elements, and Ramses, Ellie embodied her persona as Mother Sophia. A couple of times, though, the masks and veils have all dropped away. Literally, in the shower scene at her house, in the nanotech lab at Taura's, and here once more she and Faye speak to one another without intermediaries. The framing of the scene is hair-raisingly awkward. It starts with Faye, true to his resolution after the fight with Hammer, harrowed by his smile, telling Ellie in front of everybody not to come along on the next mission. Is the real reason her safety or the success of the mission? The nature of the foe making her a liability now? Or is it contained in those ellipses, something which he can't bring himself to say? When Ellie goes out crying, everyone agrees he was harsh, though that was the point. What they're really condemning is that he hasn't said what he hasn't said. He hasn't admitted that it's obvious. The difference between how he speaks here within the story, clumsy and awkward, versus in the retrospective narration from the numinous chair, where everything is stated poetically and explicated patiently, without embarrassment, becomes more and more apparent. He's the one who doesn't understand. That is, the fae within the story. And it takes the others to make it plain for him, so that he can accept it and speak it so clearly from the chair later, outside of time. He doesn't venture to name what he doesn't understand, but fortunately his friends are bold enough to tell him. A lady's heart, 
Bart's bravado atop the table, urging on his friend, makes a lovely counterpoint to Faye's stolidness, and everyone's chastisement of the young man blends with encouragement to tell her how he feels. This includes, curiously, reminiscences of Hammer from Rico, and includes Chuchu, who always held a flame for Faye, finally bowing to Ellie's claim. That's if you stop to talk to everyone on the way out. Clearly, to do so is ingrained in the RPG player, but such thoroughness cuts completely against the tone of the scene and what they're telling you to do. Just go. And this goes on. You can explore the whole ship, talking to everyone for the nth time to see if they have something new to say. But the one thing you need to do is find Ellie in the bedroom down the spiral stairs. The first thing Faye tells her is still beside the point. Though coming closer, the more he explains, the more he approaches that retrospective mode of understanding. Another reason why he doesn't want her to fight emerges, that she is a light to guide them, and that can't be risked. Strangely, directly, as he puts it, her body is not just hers anymore. Her apparent non-sequitur reply comes to the real topic, how she saw herself in him at first. So it sort of relates to this idea that she is not just herself, how she'd wanted to run away from it all, and that need not to feel alone might have been mistaken for love, but there's no mistaking anymore that it's different now. I am me and you are you, she says, which is very close to Montaigne's articulation of friendship in his essay. And yet, still needing one another, it's not as flight, that is, as fleeing or running away, but as the complementary whole-making and mutually giving quality of love. And that sums up the state of their relationship to this point. A running away, which becomes a running together towards something greater than the reality they've known. Yet with Faye's resolve not to go with her this time, now that the goal of that running and striving together is seemingly within reach at last, Ellie admits to a premonition of being torn apart, of no longer being her. And not that the whole they are together, either. She feels this will mean never seeing him again. With that, it's Faye's turn to finally open up about feeling the same. He is all along, as the song puts it, the one who is torn apart. Or so it had seemed but maybe now we can see that applies to Ellie just as much. He has held id more or less in check within himself and been able to persevere as far as he has only with her help. As Faye puts it, echoing the role of Penelope within the Odyssey, she is his home to return to. And in that way, a great line of John Ashbery's Ecclesiast comes to mind. They're together far apart. That said, all this talking about love gives way to the physical expression, the simplest and purest meaning of that sense that their bodies are not just their own, but one another's. As few, if any, games at the time had shown so frankly, the hero and heroine make love, a kiss adumbrated in an anime cutscene, and then a chaste cut away from their sprites embracing. 
The fascination such a scene of love holds, depicted in a video game like this, for all its cinematic cliches, is hard to overstate. As a young person playing the game, that consummation of love in sexual relations is the most interesting thing in the world, the most mysterious and alluring. It's all sorts of cultural images hint at, from music to movies to cartoons. And more than hint, they cross over into explicitness in plenty of cases. But the depiction here is straightforward, as natural as can be. It's treated as an important, and yet it's not flaunted in the player's face. Following the embrace, the story picks up with Ellie in bed, face-standing, dressed. He's shy or startled to find her watching him. But she's been awake all along, she says, watching over him. It's meant to be romantic, but there is a spookiness there too, a voyeuristic element reflecting on us playing the game and reminding us of that elemental power of Ellie's gaze, blue and hypnotic, as Miang put it. As if to seal the importance of what's been given and received by the two of them, this last night they have together, Faye reverses the traditional token-giving motif of the knight and his lady, giving her his pendant, to which the player can only exclaim, Hold on! He's had that all along? From when we saw it swinging in the cutscenes and filtering light through the cathedral, he never mentioned it? The game never pointed it out? It could be it could be in the ellipses this time that the obvious answer comes. It's the very pendant worn by Sophia in the painting and in all those cutscenes. But that cross shape has been there long before. If the words printed on the screen of the doomed spaceship come from the source they seem to, the Bible and Christianity in various guises have been hiding in plain sight all along. And they inform our very idea of love, whether romantic, sexual, friendly, communal. So, with this goodbye, that image gets made concrete, the cross-shaped pendant standing for a commitment, like a wedding ring. The scene shifts to the footbridge in Nissan, site of so many conversations before, where this time we're treated to Margie's feminist critique. Indeed, she was supposed to be a playable character initially, but that was literally left out of the action. She was relegated to the supporting role she plays, and even that, in large part, has now been supplanted by Ellie's new role as Mother Sophia. Ellie's response is to move the grounds of the contention, not to ignore the difference in male and female roles, leaving aside Emeralda, Maria, Choo Choo, each a special case, but to reverse their relative importance, so that the female condition of remaining home, of being the home to return to, implies an act of condescension from a position of power rather than of relegation to one of weakness. In this, Ellie speaks intimately to her friend, and yet some spirit of her public persona comes through again, animating her affirmation of purpose here. To Margie's reference to God, 
Ellie replies with this restatement. Now, to those innermost feelings everyone believes in, which turns out to be Sophia's esoteric teaching, treasured by the Nissan sect. Margie thus brings into play Ellie's conscious understanding of her reincarnation of its founder, which she and Faye did not actually discuss. And Ellie, the home he fights to return to, speaks of her strange foreknowledge of the place where they stand, and of trying to do what she couldn't before. On that enigmatic note, we see rising from the bottom of the sea, where before it had coasted through space, the ship whose name is still legible, Eldridge. This is what they call Mahanan, the floating continent, and what the player knows at last to be the wrecked starship from the opening scene, or at least a big part of it. We're hustled through, not getting to play this part, but we catch a glimpse of the control room, miraculously preserved among the wreckage 10,000 years old. And the story falls into place for us, and for the characters at roughly the same time. As old man Baal had suggested, no older humans than these lived on this planet. This ship's passengers represent the ancestors of all living. More material from the opening cutscene is brought into play. That obscure reference like Raziel's tree, a name shouted by one of the crew, and the being that was referred to in the plural, confusingly, Deus, God, or in the original script, Yahweh. Finding it in its tube, from which it breaks out to attack our party, just as it did in the beginning, this time, we are a match for it. Even as Faye asks, could this be it, the absolute? The dread the player experiences here is effective and authentic. With each turn, the distorted creature goes about halving the HP of your entire party. But like the spike ceiling chamber in the anima dungeon, if you stand your ground you'll see that it halves its own HP, too. Attacking Deus will cause it to heal disastrously. But with patience and a little luck, we should be able to figure out not to attack until its HP is low enough to allow us to wipe it out in a few hits. Again, the gimmick is thematically potent, as it establishes a kind of link between this ultimate weapon and your own party. It cooperates in its own defeat here, like the smiles of Sufal Mass and Hammer, or even, maybe even like Sophia in the painting, foreshadowing her own self-sacrifice. And when Deus is beaten, the ship remains afloat this time. We may yet get answers to our oldest questions. Carrying ahead, this concept of reciprocity, question and answer, dialogue and dialectic. In the city-sized core of the ship, twin relics harbor divine wisdom, as the narrative continues to call it. Satan, accessing them, unfurls for us a greater legend even than the Fatima scrolls, but along the same lines. 
Here are the weapons in the mothership. Malach and Yahweh, Deus, the nucleus of the weapons, and deepest of all, Zohar, power source, which stands in relation to the anima relics as they to the memory cubes. Yet, on the cusp of accessing the wisdom of that fount of all power, Graf, he, all caps, in phase narration, swoops in, bat wings spread like back at Kislev, obeying, or at any rate working alongside Krellian, who's there too in his gear. Maybe it's that Omni-One from Solaris? A devastating fight ensues. Theoretically, it is possible to win it. The prize for which is, appropriately, the Slayer's Robe. But it's a token only, though pretty high in defense stats, because the story goes on the same either way. It acts as if you lose. And this is a fight you can lose and allow the story to proceed, whereas that against Deus, although it sort of looks like one you're supposed to lose, is not. Are you frustrated? Graf asks. It's only natural. Faye's power, he says, is imperfect without wrath. Power for the soul, a source of power, like the Zohar, the monolith of 2001. Groff's extended soapbox here is so impressive that I'll read a bit more from it. The drive to massacre and annihilate, the compulsion to destroy your opponent, such wrath is power for the soul. By eliminating your foe, you attain your first sublimation of that drive. It is this very sublimation that draws out the hidden powers within oneself. But clinging to reason, suppressing your wrath and desire, makes releasing your true power a dream within a dream for you. You already know this. When wrath appeared in your heart, the machine responded, did it not? What drew out such power from your machine was truly the drive of your soul. It was your id, the sign of the purpose you've been seeking, the mark of a natural-born assassin. To his credit, Faye maintains himself. I am not id, he says. That language of sublimation and suppression dreams, and drives suggests that Graf, too, has spent some time in the astral confessional slash psychologist's uh, couch. On that plane, his soul and phase speak much the same language, but they have arrived at opposite conclusions as to phase purpose. And on the point of taking his soul, to draw its power out at last, a very literal possession of Fay by Graf seems imminent, Krellian intervenes. This is precisely what he pushed Ramses to do, and yet he stops Fay and Graf short. Why? It cuts the music. Bait, he calls Fay. The precious bait needed to catch a precious bird. <laughs> uh, it's needed to fulfill my earnest desire, as he says. And he calls Graf by his true name, that name that spells out his deeper connection to Faye. 
Lacan. Krellian's next move is to dramatize one of the strangest set pieces in the game. Crucify them in Golgotha. This name is lifted straight from the Gospels, the place of the skull, Golgotha, which makes the parallel to a Christ-type inescapable, if the crucifixion by itself wasn't enough. Still, the identification of the Christ figure is ambiguous. Faye and Ellie seem to have competing claims, or they together make up that one whole of the human who is also divine. This crucifixion will take place west of here, in which we hear a cultural orientation signaled. It will involve not just captive bodies, but, curiously, the broken gears. Promised Land, then, makes an ironic title for the ensuing chapter. The scene opens on Ellie and Margie tending to the mutated masses among the nuns. She describes it as an eternal nightmare, a hell parallel to Mahanan's depths. And again, either of these might be the Gethsemane of their respective stories. We already saw their last supper and their night together. Margie urges her to take a break, but preferring to stay busy, Ellie must be leaning over in such a way that the cross Faye gave her becomes visible. Margie recognizes it for the pendant of Nisan. Her premonition of the danger therein gets represented as the pendant flying off, shedding sparks. It's the third time such a premonition has been manifested in this kind of way. The music box malfunctioning at Satan's came first, and the young prince's cup breaking at old Mason's bar was next. Each of their responses was rather different. Satan's was a fatalistic process of observing and caretaking, though with crucial interventions as your strongest party member and ally. Mason, with the comedic and brave rescue with the land crab, is very much a riff on Satan himself though he's not a playable character. And here Ellie, placing herself beyond the reach of the party by her sacrifice, removes herself as one. Ascending to Shiva one last time, Ellie takes the Omnigear we've heard so much about and heads off to answer Krellian's call. The Kebler group, in an oddly touching scene that converts their role from one of scorn to pathos, beseeches her to rethink her course. And quite rightly, they point out that there's no guarantee Krellian will let her go. It's suicide to trust him, to go alone without any support. Finally, with an air of suspecting the answer, they ask, why? As she puts it, it's a woman's prerogative to be selfish. Loving whole masses of people and loving just one man. Evoking the bliss, the peace of their marriage, it is clear this is no paradox, no dilemma for her at all. The universal love she represents and the particular love she embodies are not at odds, but having transmitted and preached the one, she now has to follow the other out to its end, the path traced by the swinging cross. She leaves them with a task, 
to do what they can for their friends here. For the crucifixion scene, not only the context of the religious meaning of the act is salient, but the whole history of the Christian religion in Japan, too, might be worth mentioning. The novel Silence by Shusaku Endo, for instance, tells through historical fiction the story of Christian missionaries tortured by the devotion of their own converts and by doubts of their own purpose in that hostile land. There's a monument near a train station in Nagasaki to 26 martyrs crucified there. It's far more than the three classically represented in Western iconography of Christ and the two sinners on either side. Golgotha is everywhere, not just west of here. And Xenogears, it's present in giant robots with the names of Norse gods and a giant stuffed animal called Chuchu, crucified. What this allows is the spectacle of crucifixion, along with the sense of its own over-the-topness to come through. Cruelly treating them, yet permitting the pilots to live, to be there, to implore Ellie to leave, even as she accomplishes their rescue, Krellion indulges in sweet talk, gallantry. He is conscious of the fulfillment of his own, as he put it, earnest desire. And yet it's very playful here with this public display. It's equal and opposite to that intimate consummation between Faye and Ellie. It's, quote, as if that scene from the past has been brought back to life in the present, he says. She's even brought her gear, he says, plainly referring to Sophia. To put her to the test, Krellian summons executioner-garbed guards surrounding her and triggering a scripted battle. The green centipede Mugwort and Rattan from the Third Gate, names as quotidian as their gears, square off with Ellie in this fight you don't control. It's a kind of echo of the opening fight in Lahan, but the awakening here seems to matter even more to Krellian than Faze did. She rises after suffering terrible damage to destroy them in one shot without speaking any more. Then she swoons. Krellian takes care to keep her alive, though he doubts if this was her true awakening or just protecting her master. He leaves that master, so-called, and his friends to wallow and meditate on their lack of any real power. As we'll see, Faye is correct to wonder whether there might be some real reason Krellian allows them to live. Is it that, like the tortured apostates of Endo's novel, they suffer more alive than dead? In the next chapters, we'll see the true source of power revealed. The crisis with Graf and the endgame will come into focus. Thanks for listening.